Chapter 6, Creeds In philosophical considerations of the nature of life, a question that has been much debated has been the rivalry between nature and nurture. That is the question whether the inherent qualities of an animal or the external conditions of its life are more important to it. In fact, the argument leads nowhere, because when two things are both absolutely essential, it simply has no meaning to ask which is the more important. There is not even a clear-cut separation between them, but a separation can be made if it is accepted that it is only a rough assignment of emphasis and not a definite splitting of the subject into two. In the previous chapter, the emphasis was on man's nature, and it is now the turn for his nurture, in particular for the way human history may be affected by what a man learns from his fellows. Man shares with the higher animals the capacity for learning, though to an immensely superior degree. The question of how animals learn is much simpler. It has been objectively studied in various ways, in particular by the method of conditioned reflexes, that is to say, by the study of how, by practice, which must always be associated with rewards for success, an animal acquires skill in the performance of tasks which have been set to it. In the experiments, the tasks have often been quite unlike anything that would happen in wildlife, but the results show the general way in which an animal does learn skills, and the same processes applied to the conditions of the wild state undoubtedly assist the animal to survive in the struggle for life. The study of conditioned reflexes has brought out clearly the fact that there is a great variability among different individual animals in that some learn skills much more easily than others. This is presumably an inherent quality of the individual, but learning is not always a matter of acquiring skills by individual effort, for it often implies definite teaching. This holds particularly in the case of man, but among animals also teaching plays some part. For example, the catching of mice is one of the important things a kitten must learn in order to fit it for the struggle for life, and a cat teaches her kittens how to do it. It may be that sometimes the whole future of a litter of kittens will be prejudiced through their having been taught a bad style of catching mice by their mother. So even among animal survival may depend on having been taught the right doctrines. The process of teaching and learning are obviously of immensely greater importance to humanity than to any animal, and the first thing to note is that in the matter of heredity, education must rank as an acquired character so that it does not come under the Mendelian laws. 
there can be no genes representing what one has been taught. Nevertheless, as I pointed out in the last chapter, the matter is rather more subtle than this bald statement might be taken to imply. To bring the point out, I will take an example which is deliberately exaggerated. Suppose that there is an earnest believer who holds that acquired characters are always inherited perfectly. He ought to expect that the children of literate parents will be able to read without being taught, or that the son of a Latinist will spontaneously know Latin grammar. In fact, he expects neither of these things, but only for the reason that every single child that has ever been born is an example to the contrary. Though he has to accept this disappointment, he will nevertheless make the best of things by claiming that the children of literate parents usually learn to read earlier and more easily than others do. In this, he will often be quite right, but part of the reason is only loosely connected with heredity. In part, the result arises from two very general characteristics of mankind, the tendency of the child to imitate what it sees going on around it, and the tendency of parents who want to teach their children. It is true that there are innate characters so that they will fall under the biological laws of heredity, but they are too general to be invoked for the narrower purpose of the present argument. However, there is a more special application of the law of heredity, which can be legitimately used. It is true. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is true that there is no gene conferring a knowledge of Latin grammar, but there well may be a gene conferring the type of brain which makes the study of things like Latin grammar congenial, and it is likely that parents who have found Latin to their taste will possess this gene, so that they are likely to pass it on to their children. The question of inher the inheritance of intellectual qualities is matched by the inheritance of moral qualities, which have to be taught to the growing child in much the same manner by precept and example. There still lingers in many quarters the conception of the perfectibility of mankind, and it is well worth considering what the biological theory of heredity has to say about it. In discussing the non-inheritance of acquired characters in the last chapter, I cited the example of the training of dogs to do tricks, and I pointed out that the wise trainer would always use the dogs that learnt the tricks easily, and would get rid of those dogs that were slow learners. I chose this example deliberately as being free from any ethical questions such as must inevitably enter into all matters that concern humanity. But still, it is interesting to see how it would apply to humanity when considerations induced from ethics are for the moment forgotten. A philanthropic dictator 
who wants to perfect the innate moral qualities of the human race, how should he go about it? Following the example of the dog trainer, he will devote all his attention to the good children, and he will neglect the worse ones, doing all he can to see that they do not succeed in life, and above all, that they are not permitted to hand on their inferior qualities to later generations. Actually, all too often, philanthropic, philanthropic effort goes in exactly the opposite direction, into curing the faults of the worst without recognizing that the acquired characters so induced are quite impermanent. In saying this, I am thinking of the long-range policy, and I do not in the least want to belittle the self-sacrificing work that is done by so many noble workers in improving the conduct of the worst elements of the population. It may be justified as being a good in itself, and moreover, the existence of criminals perturbs very seriously the life of the rest of the community, so that everyone benefits if this nuisance is removed. Still, it is proper to note that the policy of paying most attention to the inferior types is the most inefficient way possible of achieving the perfectibility of the human race. Turning now away from these narrower questions of biological heredity, consider the larger question of how education, in the widest sense, has affected and will affect history. Every man builds up a world of thought, directing his conduct, which is partly formed from his own experience. But even more of it is acquired from his teachers and in later life from friends and acquaintances or from books. I shall use the word creed to denote a set of tenets acquired in this general manner. I mean the word in an entirely colorless sense, with no question arising of whether the creed is true or untrue, moral or immoral. It is merely a body of philosophical thought. Whether it is reasonable or unreasonable philosophy, which is strongly held and used as a main guide to conduct. There are, of course, creeds held by single individuals, but naturally the important ones are held by large communities. Such creeds have produced, and will again produce, enormous effects on human history, and their influence must be considered. The first thing to notice about creeds is that they are inherited, but inherited according to curious laws quite different from the usual biological ones. A man is rather likely to hold the same creeds as his parents and relations, but no more than he is those of his teachers and his friends. Whereas he has received his instincts and his inherent qualities from his ancestors and will share them with his blood relations. It will be pure accident if they happen to coincide with those of his friends. In this respect, a parallel can be drawn between creeds and languages. 
for a man is likely to speak the language of his parents, but he is quite as likely to speak that of his unrelated friends. A language is a simpler thing to analyze than a creed, and so it may be useful to follow the analogy further. Up to a point, the classification of languages resembles the classification of animals. Both can be divided into varieties, species, genera, and so on. And both gradually change their forms with the lapse of time, or they may branch out into several varieties, or they may become extinct. To this degree, they are similar, but the resemblance fails if it is taken further. Thus, the vocabulary of a language is sometimes a mixture derived from quite unrelated sources. Among animals, this would be as though a hybrid could be produced between a mammal and an insect. Again, sometimes wholly new words arise derived from no traceable source, and presumably originating from the caprice of some inventor. For languages, the principle omni vivum ex vivo does not hold. Much the same would seem to be true of creeds. Like animals, they could be classified into varieties, species, and so on, and like them, they often show progressive modification, branching, and extinction. But on the other hand, there have often been hybridizations between quite unconnected creeds, and sometimes wholly new doctrines have arisen with no evident parentage at all. In fact, a new kind of heredity has come into existence of a quite a different type, from that affecting animals, but of great importance to mankind. It appears to me that what I may call the natural history of creeds would be a very exciting study and one meriting a great deal of attention. I have neither the psychological nor the historical knowledge to study the natural history of creeds in detail and I shall therefore be content with giving a few examples of what I am trying to express. I select for my starting point an avowedly trivial example. The creeds about what food should be eaten. Why is it that we eat the flesh of certain animals and not of others? If anyone in Europe is offered a dish of dog's flesh, he will refuse it with something like horror rationalizing his refusal, perhaps by the explanation that the dog is a dirty animal. A Muslim will also refuse it. For him, it would be immoral to eat it, because it is prohibited by his scriptures. On the other hand, in certain parts of China, the dog is much prized as an article of diet. From what we know of other Chinese cooking, this shows that the taste of dog's flesh must be excellent. Nevertheless, there are very few of us who could be persuaded to try the dish. Contrast this with the reactions to the pig. For the Chinese, it is the most prized meat of all. 
for the European nearly as much so, even though the pig is proverbially regarded as the typical dirty animal. Whereas, for the Muslim, it would again be immoral to eat it. Creeds about food are patently trivial, but this example does show, nevertheless, what a tremendously strong influence a creed has on our conduct. Creeds about more important things, naturally, have a very much greater compulsion. Those we hold firmly appear to us to have the inevitability of the propositions of formal logic. Anyone who does not happen to share our creeds is at the least regarded as an illogical fool, but more frequently as a perversely wicked person. It is this that has led to most of the terrible series of persecutions that have blackened the records of history. Creeds often arouse the most fanatical devotion. It is enthusiasm for his creed that has created the martyr, and if we happen to share his creed, the martyr is regarded as one of the noblest of humanity. But the matter is not as simple as that, for this judgment has usually been prejudiced by the fact that we do sympathize with the martyr's creed, and it is necessary to look at the subject without this prejudice. The martyr is driven to make the ultimate sacrifice by his enthusiasm for his creed, but this enthusiasm has usually been evoked by the counter-enthusiasm of his persecutors, the majority in power, who hold an opposite creed with equal fervor. For every man who is willing to die for his faith, there will be ten men who are willing to kill for their faith. The ten feel that they are actuated by the same motive. The pure hatred of evil, as that of the martyr, and the main difference is only that for weak human nature, the role of the persecutor is easier than the role of the persecuted. But that there is no very great difference between the two is shown by many examples in history. For when the persecuted party has gained the upper hand, it is usually indulged in counter-persecution on a scale equal to that which it had itself suffered. I have cited this history of persecution as an example showing how intensely important creeds are as influences on human conduct. And in passing, another characteristic of them may be noted. This is that, though the infidel is hated, he is no by means so much hated as is the heretic. However, Though such matters are interesting aspects of the natural history of creeds, for my present purpose, it would be out of place to follow them further. It will be noticed that I have, I have not said anything at all about what is the fundamental question in regard to any creed, and that is whether it is true or false. For one who wants to believe in a creed its truth is all that matters. But it is not this that matters for my purpose. In the past, there have been creeds, such, for example, as the belief in magic or divination, 
which have been very widely accepted, but we now know them to have been quite absurdly false. Yet they have exerted the very greatest influence on human history. The species Homo has not changed, and there are still very many who are only too eager to believe in such things. Not by any means all of them confined to the less advanced civilizations, and it must be expected that this tendency will continue to recur again and again. The question of the truth of a creed is therefore irrelevant to my purpose. What does matter is whether a creed, true or false, helps the survival of its holder. And it is from this point of view that I shall try and study the natural history of I can best illustrate the importance of creeds for survival by beginning with an example which is avowedly much oversimplified. One of the tenets of the Society of Friends is that it is wrong to fight. Quakers, therefore, would not be killed in war, whereas the believers of other faiths without this prohibition would lose a fraction of their numbers in every war. Religious faiths have a strong tendency to be adopted from the parents, and so in each succeeding generation there should be more Quakers in proportion to the rest of the population. And yet, there is no difference whatever in the makeup of the genes of the body cells of the two types. This example illustrates the way in which a creed might affect survival. It has, of course, been much oversimplified, and it must not be pushed too far. For if it were carried to the extreme, all the population would, in the end, be non-combatant, with no one to protect them from being destroyed by another race. A much more important example is the ancestor worship formerly prevalent in China. This imposed on a man the obligation to have a family in order that the worship of the shades of his ancestors might continue. With a population like the Chinese, in which its poorest members are always living on the edge of starvation, there must have been a much greater chance of survival for the children of the abler people, so that the creed would have a strongly eugenic effect. Contrast this with the state of Europe in the Middle Ages. There, it was the custom for many of the ablest people to go into the church and so condemn themselves to sterility. Even if there was often laxity about the enforcement of celibacy, a priest's children would be illegitimate and so would be handicapped instead of being favored in their chances of survival. This difference of creeds goes with a remarkable difference of histories, and it may well have been an important contributing factor to the difference. Both the Chinese and the Roman empires were attacked at various times by barbarians, and whereas the Roman Empire was so disrupted, disrupted that it took nearly a thousand years for civilization to return to it, the Chinese Empire absorbed its Mongol conquerors after only two generations. 
It is not probable that it is largely on account of the creed of ancestor worship that the Chinese civilization has been the one in the whole world that has shown the most continuity and the one that now has a fifth of the whole human race. In the study of the natural history of the creeds of the past, it is inevitable to consider the religious creeds in particular, both because they are the ones that have roused the passions of humanity far the most, and also because we have much fuller records of them than of any others. It must be remembered that from the present point of view, the question of the truth or falsity of a religion is not directly relevant. The only question is its influence on the history of the human race. In each of the great religions of the world, however different their pure theology doctrines may be, there has been a general ethic which has exerted a steady and beneficent influence on its believers. The ethics of the different religions have not been very different since their main aim is to inculcate the social virtues which are essential if life is to be tolerable in any community, large or small. For example, a virtuous Christian and a virtuous Muslim will have very similar standards of conduct dictated to them by their very different religions, and these standards will be hardly different from those dictated by the Confucian philosophy. The influence of these ethical principles has been immense, and if I do not discuss them further, it is not for want of recognizing this influence. It is because they do seem to have worked out to the same consequences no matter what the religion from which they started, whereas an objective study of creeds must be primarily concerned with the different consequences that they may have produced. A greater interest attaches to the aspects of religious creeds where enthusiasm or even fanaticism has entered, because it is these enthusiasms that have been responsible for the most striking events in history. For the rest of this chapter, I shall use the word creed, therefore, in this more restricted sense. In this narrower sense, creeds are almost like living things, possessing a course of life from birth through maturity to death. The analogy is imperfect in one respect, since all too often, after the general enthusiasm for the creed is dead, there is left behind a minority, a sort of fossilized rump which continues to hold the doctrines of the creed for centuries afterwards. With this qualification, and perhaps with other exceptions, it would seem a rough generalization that creeds tend to live for two or three centuries, or to express it in biological measure for not more than about ten generations. Consider some of the creeds that have flourished excessively inside the Christian religion. In the 4th and 5th centuries, there were fanatical creeds associated with 
metaphysical questions of the nature of the deity, and men were ready to die and to kill for the sake of subtle questions incomprehensible to us now, connected with the nature of the Trinity. As time went on, this creed reached its old age and tended to become a political persecution, not of individuals, but of whole nations, such as those that had adopted the Arian heresy. Then again, in the 11th century, there were the Crusades, a more fitting creed for these semi-barbarous people of Western Europe. They lasted about two centuries and also degenerated in the end into a political instrument for rival Christian parties who by that time had little left of the original enthusiasm against Islam. Then there is the Reformation, which started towards the beginning of the 16th century. Some may hold that we are still too near the Reformation to pronounce an opinion on its present vitality, but it is certain that its color had very materially, materially changed within little more than a century, for the Thirty Years' War was a war for power, not for religion, even though it was largely between Protestants and Catholics. It would be most interesting to study whether there were similar growths and decays of creeds in Islam or Buddhism, and also to study the behavior of such creeds as philosophical stoicism, which never provoked the same fierce fanaticism as did the religious creeds. Another feature of creeds seems to be rather general. Though the majority of a population say something like nine-tenths accept their creed implicitly and regard it as part of the law of nature, there is always a small minority who do not. Most people call them the sheep, follow the ideas of their leaders unquestioningly, but this minority, the goats, go by contraries and disbelieves anything just because those around them believe it. The goats are often not very pleasant people, but they are usually above the average of intelligence. It is probably the corroding influence of the goats that gradually saps the vitality of a creed by its cumulative infection. And indeed, there may well be a, proportionately, a proportionality between the number of goats in a community and the lifespan of the creed of the sheep in that community. In the future history, the constancy of human nature makes it certain that man will continue to be dominated by enthusiasm for creeds of one kind or another. He will persecute and be persecuted again and again for the sake of ideas, some of which to later ages will seem of no importance and even unintelligible. But there is one much more valuable aspect of creeds that must be noticed. They serve to give a continuity to policy far greater than can usually be attained by intellectual conviction. 
There are many cases in history of enlightened statesmen who have devoted their lives to carrying through some measure for the general good. They may have succeeded only to find that the next generation neglects all they have done, so that it becomes undone again in favor of some other quite different way of benefiting humanity. The intellectual adoption of a policy thus often hardly survives more than a single generation, and this is too short a period for such a policy to overcome the tre tremendous effects of pure chance. But if the policy can arouse enough enthusiasm to be incorporated in a creed, then there is at last a prospect that it will continue for something like ten generations, and that is long enough to give a fair probability that it will prevail over the operations of pure chance. Thus a creed may have the rudiment of the quality possessed by the genes of mankind of being able to produce a permanent effect on humanity. If the history of the future is not regarded as the automatic unfolding of a sequence of uncontrollable events, and few of us would accept this inevitability, then anyone who has decided what measures are desirable for the permanent betterment of his fellows will naturally have to consider what is the best method of carrying his policy through. There are three levels at which he might work. The first and the weakest is by direct conscious political action. His policy is likely to die with him and so to be ineffective. The second is by the creation of a creed since this has the prospect of lasting for quite a number of generations, so that there is some prospect of really changing the world a little with it. The third would be by directly changing man's nature, working through the laws of biological heredity, and if this could be done for long enough, it would be really effective. But even if we knew all about man's genes, which we certainly do not, a policy of this kind would be almost impossible to enforce even for a short time. And since it would take many generations to carry it through, it would almost certainly be dropped long before any perceptible effects were achieved. That is why creeds are so tremendously important for the future. A creed gives the best practical hope that a policy will endure well beyond the life of its author, and so it gives the best practical hope that man can have for really controlling his future fate. End of chapter 6